they would bring out dead naked dudes, right? Headless. Attach various electrodes to their bodies and show how this headless dead guy will just shoot up an arm. Shoot up a leg. <laughs> jerk, sit, so sit up, lay down, sit creepy. up. Then, oh, you think it's creepy? Wait, this was the climax. This is the, 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 the big show at the end. They bring the severed head oh, out God. on a platter. They attach electrodes to its face and they have the severed dead head open up its eyes. Smile, prune, stick out his tongue, look around the room. Oh my goodness. History, I'd like to follow me down the rabbit hole. History, I'd like to, frankly, I want to know. Hello there, and thanks for joining me on this, the first ever, the debut episode of the Hills podcast, History I'd Like to Fuck with Dawn Brody. I'm Dawn Brody. On each episode of Hilf, I invite a guest to assign me a historical subject. It can be anything, a person, place, battle, thing, whatever. And I use my not so useless after all history degree to do a proper historian's deep dive. Like I read a whole ass book, <laughs> sometimes two. Then I sit down and I deliver the history in a way your high school teacher never did or ever would have wanted me to. <laughs> now, this episode is special. It was the third one recorded, but it is the first one that we're releasing because my guest, Helen Shepard, assigned me one of my favorite hilfs of all time, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And as it happens, we were able to record just two weeks before Halloween. I hope you enjoy and like and share and follow and rate and all that stuff. But in the meantime, just sit back and enjoy. And if any listeners out there are about to take a test on Frankenstein and you are using this podcast as cliff notes, smart, you owe me a drink. (laughs) Oh, my friends, I am delighted to have you here for this episode of Hilf, History I'd Like to Fuck with Don Brody. I am Don Brody, and I have today my guest, Helen Shepard. Hello. Helen, I am so glad you are here and you assigned me just the hilfiest hilf of hilf town. Yep. Frankenstein and Mary Shelley. Schwing. Oh my God. Can you tell me why? Why did you, why did you want me to do this for you? Okay. So it's the month of October. Everything is Halloween themed. I tried to think of the most British Halloween theme that I could, and Frankenstein is the obvious. So that is why, and uh, you know, who doesn't want to fuck Frankenstein? I know. <laughs> you know, I used to have a thing in high school for Freddy Krueger. I, I was disturbed. It's a, <laughs> yeah. it's a, it's a long story, but I did in in my locker hung a picture of Freddy Krueger. I liked that he was scarred. And rejected. I had very little competition. You know what I <laughs> yeah. mean? Like the new kids on the block, like, I just don't think it's realistic, <laughs> you know? But Kruger could be like, are you serious, girl? <laughs> so I picked the perfect topic for you. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to jump in. And we're going to talk about the novel. And then we are going to talk about the author, Mary Shelley, who is, you think you want to fuck the creature. You are really going to want to fuck Mary Shelley. She's, she's, the, I mean, there's just the, this, this whole history is just a cornucopia of fuckability. Oh yeah. Well, let's get a fucking. <laughs> well, let me introduce you first. Okay. Helen Shepard, you have on your business card, your, your website, it says TV host, actor, comedian, model. 
That is correct. Okay. <laughs> all of those things. Which, if, you had, if you couldn't say all four, if you had to pick one. I would pick TV host because that is, I guess, the, the, the bulk of my work is as a TV host. And that kind of covers all of the things a little bit. TV, home. yeah, and you're funny on TV, and you're beautiful still on TV, <laughs> so you're doing all of the other things. And I'm sure our listeners have already ascertained for themselves that you and I did not grow up in the same place. No, we definitely didn't. Uh, where did you grow up? I grew up in a place called Essex, which is um, just outside of London in the UK. Do you guys make fun of the fact that it says sex in the name yes. of your town? And I don't know if you know about this stereotype of Essex girls, um, they kind of have this really bad stereotype that they have very bleached blonde hair, wear white stiletto heels, short skirts, big boobs pushed up, and they're kind of a bit slutty. So that's, that's the stereotype <laughs> of the area that I'm from. But because of that, my parents um, sent me to school in the neighboring county of Hertfordshire. So that is why I don't have an Essex accent. And um, actually, I did used to have dyed blonde hair and but you were a boobs, slut were you a slut, a slut yeah. <laughs> but so you grew up in Essex yes and you lived there through college no I moved to Surrey just outside of London on the London borders um when I was I think I was 17 and then I went to university and then moved to London when I was 20 so I was there for over 10 years and then you came here to the beautiful yes. Los Angeles in 2019 mm -hmm. right that is correct and you came for show business, same as the rest of yeah. us, right? <laughs> and we sunshine and palm trees, but mainly show business. Before we get too into it, what do you know? Like, where, what are, where's your access point here? Have you read the book? So, Have you seen movie versions? Where are we at? I, we, were, we read the book at school, and I'm pretty sure we read like a kid's version. And then when we were a little older, we read the proper version, but I don't really remember. I think it was a little bit too difficult for an eight-year-old to, to read. Yeah, it's a, 18, you know, 28-year-olds have still <laughs> yeah. kind of a rough time. It's amazing that they would even try to assign it to oh, kids yeah. that age. And um, I remember my brother and my dad being big fans of the book and Mary Shelley. And that's kind of where my memory ends. And just that it's really spooky and people used to dress up as Frankenstein at Halloween. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. And this time of year, I mean, it's everywhere, right? Th yeah. This is like the spooky guy. It's like Dracula and the creature. Yeah. Like, right. Um, well, I'm delighted. I, I'm going to break this podcast down because there's two really, there's equally fuckable elements here. We've got the novel, the original mm -hmm. story, the original book, which is brilliant. And then we've got the author, Mary Shelley. And part of the reason why I was so excited about this subject is because I have a lot of prior knowledge, right? <laughs> now, you should know, listener, that when I uh, fuck history with my guests, um, I do a proper historical deep dive. I, I don't just do kind of a, a cursory glance on Wikipedia. Um, I spend about two weeks um, researching the subject. And this subject was so interesting because I've been researching and working as an expert on Mary Shelley and Frankenstein for about 15 years. It was my first job out of college. It was at a local museum to create and write a one-woman show about Mary Shelley. Wow. And so I wrote, I researched uh, and wrote this play and I performed it and it has been performed since, for like the last 18 years. This you play has you wrote it? Yes. And they're still performing the play that you wrote? Yes. Wow. And I did it uh, probably twice a week for about 15 years. <laughs> I would also go to high schools and perform uh, this show in this museum that hired me. It's called The Bakken. It's in Minneapolis. If you're there, you should go. It looks like a big old Gothic mansion. And it's a museum of electricity and magnetism 
founded by the founder of Medtronic, who created the first battery-operated pacemaker. And he always said, who was from Minneapolis, he was a poor guy, he invented it out of his garage, and he said, I invented the pacemaker, that medical life-saving device, because I saw Frankenstein in 1931 when I was 10 years old. It was the scary, it was, and people were running out of the theater blind, scared, you know, wow. from that movie. It was so frightening. He was 10 at the time. He snuck back in and saw it every night that week. And yeah, he was scared, right? But he was also inspired. The question that Victor Frankenstein had, which is, can electricity bring the dead to life? <laughs> no, we know that. <laughs> but what Earl Bakken figured out was that the right amount of electricity introduced to the right organ at just the right period of time can stop death, can snatch life back from death, right? Crazy. So that, and the pacemaker has saved multi-millions mm. of lives. My grandmother is among them. And Earl Bakken was so adamant that spurring the imagination of children is where we get these inventions, that he insisted on a primo Mary Shelley Frankenstein exhibit in his museum. And that was my first job. So throughout that job and throughout those years, I had the privilege of reading the novel many, many times, reading multiple versions of the novel, reading all <laughs> of Mary Shelley's letters and diaries, her other works, her correspondence home. I was uh, performed at conventions where there would be worldwide experts on Mary Shelley and Frankenstein from all sorts of various avenues. And we would sit and drink whiskey in like dark smoky <laughs> corners and talk about romanticism and galvanism. I met a guy, oh, the story. So not, I'm sitting at this is I was sitting at a convention in Phoenix, Arizona. It's Frankenstein. We were about it was right before 2018, and everyone was getting stoked for the 200th anniversary. And I'm sipping whiskey with this guy. He's cute. He's older. We're not flirting, but we're flirting intellectually. It's very Mary Shelley. And he knows all about me because I did my show, and everyone's seen my show, right? But I don't know what everyone else's discipline is and what they're doing there. And um, so I'm like, who are you know who are you? And he goes, I don't. And he got really shy all of a sudden. I was like, no, really, like why are you here? What's your business? And he finally says, well, I am the only person in the world to have successfully completed a head transplant. That's crazy. A head transplant. A head transplant. And I stood up. <laughs> and I was like, I, what? I was like, I think I have to put an ice pick in your brain. <laughs> I, I think that my job is to, it, all I know about science fiction is that you're evil and you're Victor Frankenstein. He laughed. Oh, yeah. And I was like, was it a human? He's like, no, yeah, it wasn't a human. Uh, it was a mouse. But crazy, right? Even so, a mouse. Shouldn't be doing it. No. You're a vegan. Yeah. I mean, you're like, no, leave their heads and their organs and all their milk and all their everything right where, yeah, right where it's meant to be. Uh, so it has been a, a magical, wonderful journey. And when I started researching this at first, I was like, oh, this will be a breeze. I'll just do it because I just do it. But it's actually, I read a whole new biography. Look at this, Helen. This is 600 page. So, yeah. so the only so actual challenge uh, for me here with you today mm -hmm. is going to be keeping it short, <laughs> keeping it quick, staying on point, keeping all the fuckable details together. So you're, Helen, you are welcome to interrupt me if okay. you have questions. If I've gone over something too fast, you want to go back, you're curious, feel free to leap in at any point. But here's my plan. First part is the novel, and I'm going to do the novel um, as Mary Shelley uh, wrote it, and then I'll talk a little bit later about like how the movie versions and what people expect. Because if, if like you, and like most people, you haven't read the book or you read the book a long time ago, and you're much more familiar with Boris Karloff's movie, that's fine, right? I mean, like I said, but Earl Bakken made the pacemaker. Like, I don't shit. <laughs> I am not a purist. I really love everything touching on Frankenstein. Mary Shelley would too. Whatever it inspires is cool, right? But this part that I'm going to tell you right now is the story as it unfolds 
in the book. Okay. Um, so if you, if you pick up Frankenstein, if you, dear listener, are like, this is fascinating. I'm going to get me a book. I'm going to read this right now. I hope you do. You're going to love it. I want you to emotionally and physically prepare for the fact that this spooky-ass famous book about monsters starts in the North Pole with a brother writing letters to his sister. And it can be kind of a boner killer. If you go in there kind of hard and ready to go, like it's a little bit of ice water on your balls, like right (laughs) from the get go. But hang in there. And for the eighteen eighteen reader, for to open up and find that this letter is from a brother is like, as you know, sister, I'm heading up to the North Pole. I'm I'm on my way to the Arctic. I don't even know what I'm doing. I just have to go. He he's the we would have they would have been fascinated. It would be like a novel in twenty twenty one starting with a guy going to colonize Mars. No one's been to the North Pole yet. And for context, this is an 18... Well, she starts writing it in 1816. No one got to the North Pole until 1909, almost 100 years later. And the really confirmed one is like 1929. So this is a really ambitious thing to try to go to the North Pole. It it is as exotic a place on Earth as anyone could imagine. And only the bravest and most interesting would even attempt it, right? Mm -hmm. So he's on. he finally gets a crew together. He's on the way out there. And they're kind of at the edge of humanity, like where no one else has ever been. And they see a guy. Right? So the crew's like, whoa. What? And they see in the distance a giant, freaky looking dude with a dog sled across the ice. And they're like, wait, I thought we were the first. And they all get really freaked out and then they go to bed. Then they wake up the next morning and there's another guy, but he's like a human, normal guy and he's completely alone and he's just stuck on an ice floe. And he's like, so they rescue, they bring him on board. Right. He's sick, he's skinny, he's not doing great. And he, instead of saying, oh, thank God you saved me, he won't even get on the boat until they promise him that they're going north not back to St. Petersburg, that they're going further out into the unknown. And they're like, you hardly hmm. seem in a position to want to go. <laughs> For the, yeah, that's where we're going. So he gets on board. So now still letters the guy's writing. He's like, this guy that we brought on board, he's nuts. His name is Victor Frankenstein. Mm. And he is uh, not as weird. We thought he woke up. He's more intelligent. I kind of like the guy, actually. And so we've become friends. And then Victor tells this guy his story. So now, as an author, you're reading Victor is like, I think I need to tell you how I got here. Because I can tell that you're ambitious, too. And you might be sick with the same illness I had. So maybe <laughs> this can be a cautionary tale for you. So now the reader, you're in Victor's story. Victor's like, I grew up normal life, uh, kind of an ambitious, curious guy. I go to medical school in Ingolstadt, Germany. And at the time, he's learning from all these professors who are p- kind of squares. He's really curious. He thinks he can do stuff like revive dead tissue and try uh, al- alchemy k- stuff, like mm-hmm. a little more out there, stuff that has been tried and is considered non-science. And he's discouraged. One professor is like, yeah, it's kind of interesting. But in general, he knows whatever he really wants to do needs to be done in secret. He can't do it with his professors. He can't do it with his colleagues. If he really wants to pursue this stuff, he has to do it by himself. So he starts digging up graves and accumulating his own cadavers and introducing various sparks of life, using, using the instruments of life and the spark of being. That's as specific as Mary gets. Um, dark in the, his lab one night, the creature awakes. I beheld the wretch, the miserable monster whom I had created. He held up the curtain of the bed, and his eyes, if eyes they may be called, were fixed on me. His jaws opened, and he muttered some inarticulate sounds while a grin wrinkled his cheeks. He might have spoken, but I did not hear. One hand was stretched out, seemingly to detain me, but I escaped. Okay, right? So Victor fucks off because it's too ugly and scary. (laughs) Which is such, like... You've been, you dug him out of the ground. (laughs) You've been putting him together. You just realized he's disgusting? Yeah. How dare you? So he runs away and he hides. 
because he's like, this thing is spooky. Mm-hmm. Then his friend comes along. Story. Eventually he goes back to the lab. He's like, you got to see, I did this thing. And the creature's gone. <gasps> the, the lab is empty. And he's like, whew, <laughs> dodged a bullet there. Thank God, because this was about to get really bad. And he's pretty convinced that it was just a, like a little battery life. Like this right, thing will okay. go out there and just die. And, and, it's, and it's not getting him and it's not getting his, whew, you know. Then he goes for long walks because this is a romantic novel. So he (laughs) takes long walks up into the hills and he finds himself. (laughs) And when I say emotionally recovering, it's so, so much time in this book is Victor taking naps to revive himself (laughs) because he's exhausted and he's just been working so hard. People are bringing him food. It's all very sad. But he's like, oh, okay, I think I got my strength back and I took a walk and now I feel better. And then he gets letters from home, letters from his dear Elizabeth, this girl he's been promised to, his love of his life. He's been with, loved her since she was a child, um, which is problematic. We'll talk about it later. But, um, and uh, she um, is like, oh, do you remember Justine? Um, she's the girl that we like so much. Yeah, just reader, letting you know about this girl, Justine, and also your little brother, William. Love him. Okay, see you later. Then the next letter comes. It's like, never mind, William's dead. You have to come home. <laughs> Wow, that escalated quickly. (laughs) I know, it really does. So Victor's like, you know, it's been six years since I've left. It's been two years since the creature woke up. My brother's dead. I gotta go home. Gets in a carriage, heads home. Out the window from the carriage on his way home, he sees the creature. (gasps) He spots him immediately out the window, and he knows it's him. And he also knows he killed his brother. He just kind of knows it. Wow. He gets home, and they're like, yeah, um, you know, he was definitely murdered, and Justine did it. Justine's been arrested for the murder, this nice girl that we've just conveniently mentioned (laughs) to everybody. And Victor's like, oh no. And he can't save her because she's confessed to a priest, which is, I think, Mary Shelley's jab. She's an atheist. I think it's her subtle jab to be like, priests are never helpful. Oh. (laughs) So she's confessed to a priest and he's like, I can't help her. I'm going to be like, I know she didn't do it because the monster I made did. Because I think I saw him out the window. Never mind. You know, he just yeah. knows. And he says, William and Justine are the first two victims of my dark arts. So he feels pretty guilty about it, but not guilty enough, in my opinion. But he's like, yeah. And Justine gets executed. And boy, it's just so hard on him. So he goes for a walk. She got executed? <laughs> She's executed oh, for Justine. the murder of his brother. He watches her go to the... He actually has the audacity to say, at least she's at peace. I'm the one who's having oh. mm-hmm. mm. Yeah, no, Victor's kind of a dou- douche. Yeah. Um, Mary, I don't think Mary Shelley thinks he's a douche. But the, it's hard as a reader in 2021 not to be like, fuck off. Um, but yeah, so she gets executed and he feels bad about it. So he goes for a walk. <laughs> um, while he's on this walk up in the middle of nowhere, and he went home to Geneva. So there's like the area around this, you know, Switzerland. The creature approaches him. And, and Victor's like, oh my God. And this is like the first thing that I think surprises people if they don't know anything about the book. Not only does the creature speak, but the first words that the creature says are, pardon the intrusion. Oh, so he's polite. He's very polite. <laughs> yeah, he's very polite. And then Victor tries to fight him, <laughs> which is, so, which, again, I, it's such a funny episode of the book. Even in the book, the creature's like, no, don't do that. And then he says, Life, although it may only be an accumulation of anguish, is dear to me, and I will defend it. <laughs> right? This giant eight-foot scary monster. So not the grumbling, drooling, strangling heap yeah. of green flesh that maybe we've been introduced to. And Victor's like, okay, go ahead. And he's like, I just want to talk to you, and here's what I want. I want you to hear what I... And, and, and he keeps, Victor keeps saying, you're so ugly. I just can't even look at you. You're just so gross. And the creature, again, in an act of kindness, puts his hands over Victor's eyes and says, is this better? 
Like, please, let me then take from you the sight you hate so much. Can you hear me now? I mean, come on. He's a pussycat. Yeah. So he says, I just want you to hear my story, and then I have a request. Please. So they go into this little shack. We sit down, and now the creature tells his story. Okay? Yeah. So we have now switched narrators three times. It was this guy writing letters to his sister. Then we heard Victor in the first person, and now the creature's turn. And he says, I, the first thing, I, when I woke up, um, all was darkness. I was just full of pain. And he was a big, ugly baby. He, you know? <laughs> I mean, really. He had no language. And I'm a mom. I got a three-year-old daughter. It, as a reader, reading it now, it's so much different. He's just alone and confused. He doesn't know anything. So he stumbles out from the lab. And the first thing he says, he sees the moon. And it's beautiful. And he just is inspired by the beauty of the moon. Then he sees fire. And he experiences the warmth and the comfort and immediately the pain of trying to touch the flame. And then he sees people. <laughs> and every time he has seen a person, it's been awful. They hate him. They want to kill him, right? Violence and fear is all he sees from people, so he hides. While he's hiding, he gets to this like little shack, and he's able to observe a farm family that lives in this little remote cottage. And it's a blind old man, a, a, a boy and a girl, a man and a woman, like uh, you know, adult children. Mm -hmm. And then there's this gal who comes and visits every once in a while. But by watching them from this cottage, he learns, the creature learns from them love, what it looks like among each other, and language. He reads Paradise Lost, <laughs> which so is he, incredible. Again, talk about a leap. Taught himself to read. Yes. By watching them, they teach each other. He listens to how they talk. He follows their... And he's so enamored with this family and so um, inspired by the mm -hmm. love and gentleness that they show each other all the time that he's like this guardian angel. He starts to stack their wood anonymously at night. He tills their field. So, like, they wake up in the morning and are like, oh, my God, somebody turned the whole field over overnight. Like, it would have taken us, you know... And the wood... And they're already sort of like, wow, some angel. And he feels so good when he knows he's helping them. And, um, and he finally decides... I'm going to try. Oh, and also, you'll appreciate this. He's a vegetarian. Oh, he stops eating animals because he can't, he doesn't like to hurt the animals. And so he's been sustaining himself on berries and stuff. I know. Oh, just like me. I know. <laughs> Tell it. I mean, you're both really tall. Um, <laughs> tall English vegetarian. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Um, so he finally decides, you know what? These guys are so nice. And they're so good and they're so gentle. I am going to uh, try to approach them. Mm -hmm. I think they could love me. Even though, oh, and he sees his own reflection too. So he knows why. He, he's seen oh. his reflection now and he knows why everyone is so afraid. And he kind of understands it. So he's like, I don't know how to do it. So he waits for the son and the daughter to be gone. So he goes in and he's very sweet and he's very gentle. And the blind old man says, hello. And he says, hi, I don't want to scare you. And he says, uh, well, where are you going, friend? And the creature says, I am on my way to see some friends who I love very much. But I'm afraid that they are going to hate me and be afraid of me. And the old man starts to give him comfort oh, fear not, you know, they sound like wonderful people. I'm sure everything's going to be fine. <laughs> and you, the reader, and even the creature are like, oh, this is going to be one like a buddy comedy. <laughs> this is going to be, everything's going to be. And of course, the door opens, and the son and the daughter come in right before the creature can say, I'm the one who's been helping you guys. Oh. I'm your big scary friend, but don't be afraid. And he wants to get through it really fast so he can say it before they stop him. And so he's kind of grabbing at the old man and trying to finish his story, which is... And then it's all fire and screaming and get out of here. And he runs away. Oh, no. And he runs into the woods and he just rages for a while. And then he thinks better of it. Um, goes, ah, you know what? I'm huge and scary. and I got no lips. Like, this is hard for people. <laughs> and when he goes back, they're gone. 
And he knows them so well, he knows they're destitute without this farm. It's the last they have, you know? Mm -hmm. And he's outraged, so he burns the cottage down and destroys the fields. Oh, that's, oh, that's a bit mean. Yeah, he's starting to get... a bit much, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, he's starting to get a little dark. And then he hmm. goes to get his stuff out of the, his hiding place, you know? And he discovers the notes in the pocket of the jacket that he left the lab in, or the, the whatever mm -hmm. wraps he had, and they're Victor Frankenstein's notes. And they describe how to bring this, the creature and where he lived. And he goes... I saw, and so now the creature is saying to Victor, I found your notes. How could you do this? How could you bring a creature that even you couldn't love, that you couldn't even look at? You, I, I was outraged and I decided to come find you. So he goes, he's like, I'm heading to Geneva. That's where all this stuff, he didn't know about English, you know. <laughs> I love that he managed to find his way there with no GPS or anything. <laughs> yeah, right. And he's like, excuse me, uh, which is the way to the road? Yeah, very industrious. Uh, so he does find his way. Uh, he's on his way to Geneva. But on the way there, he sees a woman, a girl, who falls into a, a river and almost dies. He, he saves her life and her friend comes out and shoots him. Oh, I mean, it's just kind of constant. He's just getting these kicks in the ribs constantly. Mm. So he gets to Geneva, and uh, he, he, I don't know if he's looking for Frankenstein's fine. He sees this little boy wearing a necklace. And he thinks at first, ah, this kid might be kind of nice, and he's too young to be mean, so I'm going to, you know, approach. And the kid not only freaks out, but it's kind of a little shit. And then says, you know, you can't grab me. I'm a Frankenstein. Uh-oh. And the creature's like, what's that? So he kills the kid, takes the necklace. Then it gets more insidious. He's out then walking around and he sees this young woman sleeping. And this is Justine. She was out looking for William like everybody else was that night. And they closed the gates before she could get back. And so she's sleeping in some bar. And the creature said, I saw her and I wanted her. Right. And it's, it's hard to define as lust, mm. but he just, it's another person he wants to engage with. And he just knows what's going to happen when she wakes up and looks at him and he hates her. And so, again, you'd think he smashes her brains in or he kills her somehow or whatever, but he doesn't. He plants the necklace on her. Very intelligent, sort of, hmm. getting her. He knows they'll find it. She'll be accused of the murder. And, that, and he says... That's... Very dark. He yeah, says, because... Horrible. And listen, tell me if this doesn't sound like an incel <laughs> mantra, okay? Because I am forever robbed of all that she could give me, she shall atone. The crime had its source in her. Be hers, the punishment. Yeah, he mm -hmm. sounds like a psycho. Totally. <laughs> then he says, okay, anyway. So now he's with Victor. He goes, so I did all that stuff. Soupy sorry. Like, ugh. Because I don't think I'm a bad guy. And here's what I want you to do, Victor. Build me a big, ugly girlfriend. That's the request. I've been looking out here in the world. Everyone's got somebody but me. Birds, everything. And I'm alone, and I'm miserable, and I'm ugly, and no one's going to love me. And I know, he says, if someone, anything showed affection to me, I would return it a hundred and a hundredfold. I am virtuous. Misery made me a fiend. Make me a woman. And this will all go away. I'll go away forever. And if you don't, I'll kill you. <laughs> mm -hmm. And Victor says... Okay, <laughs> right? That sounds fair. So he goes and endeavors quickly to build this, this him a woman. And he's reluctant. He drags his feet. It's a long story. I'll marry you, Elizabeth, when I'm done, blah, blah, blah. He goes to Scotland, up in the Orkneys, to build mm -hmm. this creature. He, I, it, there, Mary's not very specific about how he gets the dead woman up there, 
what kind of medical equipment he have you been to the Orkneys? I've not. I am half Scottish actually. My mum's oh. from Scotland. Never been to the Orkneys though. Middle of nowhere. Middle of nowhere. Very cold. Very cold. <laughs> and I would think if you had a lot of like heavy, sturdy equipment, it'd be hard to get up to the Orkneys. I had a fanny pack when I went and it was exhausting. <laughs> so I don't know how he did it, but he gets up to Scotland and he gets the dead woman and he's right and he's working hard and he's right at the point where he's about to bring her back to life. Like it's the thing should I and he has a rare moment of contemplation, he stops. And he goes, yeah, this is a terrible idea. This is a terrible idea because what if she rejects him? He's really gonna fucking freak out. Or what if she doesn't? What if they're like this dynamic duo and they breed? And now we have these giant monsters. I can't do this. Ah, but he's gonna kill me. Ah. And he decides to destroy the woman. And he destroys her body and he destroys the lab and he takes it all apart. Now, if you're a fan of the second Frankenstein film, Bride of Frankenstein, you were starting to sound familiar. You mm-hmm. know, so there is about building a woman is in the novel, but she never comes to life. The Bride of Frank- Frankenstein in the book is never revived. The creature is watching from the window and rages. He hears him shriek in anguish and go out into the darkness, and Victor's like, I'm fucking dead. The creature does indeed come back that night, but he's cool. And he's like, friend, uh... Did I see what I thought I saw? Like he's confirming before mm-hmm. I go forth with this like massive revenge. Um, did you just kill the girl? And Victor says, yeah, I break my promise. I'm not going to do it. Wow. And the creature's okay. like, cool, cool. I will see you on your wedding night. And he flees into the darkness. And Victor is still like, he's going to kill me on my wedding night. <laughs> God. You know, because, and then he's no two. Then he gets a letter from a friend and he's got to go back to meet his best friend, Clerval. And he's like, I'll be right there. I got to dump this dead woman's body parts really quick. <laughs> so he goes down the lake and he dumps the dead woman's body parts. And then a violent, crazy storm comes up that rages his boat. He has to make a sail out of his clothes. And eventually his boat washes up on shore and he's arrested for the murder of his best friend who's been found dead. So clearly the creature went and killed his best friend. Planted something on him, right? I don't even, he didn't need to because Frankenstein is a nut. And he was his only friend. <laughs> Frankly, people were like, you're a weirdo. You are a weird looking guy. You do weird stuff. Your best friend is dead. Like, I don't actually think the creature had to plant any evidence. It was just kind of obvious. But he is acquitted of the crime. He goes to trial. He's acquitted. His dad comes and gets him. But it's a dark time, right? Yeah. So he goes, now Victor's back in Geneva. And his brother's dead. And Justine is dead. He's probably going to die. He knows the creature's hunting after him. He's having a dark time. And no one knows what's wrong. He's just hot hammered shit. And everyone's like, what is up? And his dad's like, are you embarrassed? Because you were on trial for murder of your friend. And his, and his girlfriend is like, do you love someone else? It's totally fine if you do. You know, if you love <laughs> someone else, it's fine. And he was like, I got to get married. I got to do this. I got to just do this. Maybe the creature will kill me. At which point, it's over. Maybe the creature will try to kill me, and I'll kill him. In which case, it's over. But I can't live like this. I'm ruining everyone's life. Hey, Elizabeth, 10 days. Get your wedding dress on, girl. We're going to get married. So they have the wedding. It's a nice little ceremony. (laughs) They take a nice boat. They're out on a boat, and there's a violent, crazy, radical storm (laughs) while they're out in the boat. But they get back to their wedding house, and everything's fine. And Victor's on guard, and so he's closing up the windows because of the crazy storm. And what do you know? He hears a shriek ah, from the bedroom. And he runs in, and Elizabeth is dead. Oh, no. Always. Hair draped over her face, very descriptive. (sighs) He sees her arm, her lifeless body, and the creature sitting in the window. And he waited so that he could see how Victor handled it when he found her. Then he laughs, and he runs away. 
At this point, Victor's like, ah, to make a long story short, I lose everything. His dad dies. The creature doesn't kill his dad, but it's like the stress and the crazy mm-hmm. and all this stuff. And he loses the fortune and the... Fi- I mean, the creature has been thwarting everything he's tried, and he is finds himself, everyone's dead, the business is gone, he has nothing, he's destitute. He goes to the cemetery where everyone's buried, and he says out loud <laughs> a very atheist prayer. <laughs> Mary Shelley. You know, do the spirits, I, I, you know, pray. Life is a misery, but give me the strength to avenge these deaths give me the ability to stay alive long enough to kill this creature. And the creature suddenly laughs right in his ear and says, I am satisfied. I wanted you to be miserable and to want to live. Because if I'd killed you before this moment, it would have been a relief. I knew that. Now you'll suffer every second of your life. Wow. Uh, here we go. So he then, <laughs> and the, right, right. So I know it's a really cheery stuff. Yeah. So then the creature takes off and, and helps Victor find, chase him. He's leading him up there into the North Pole, right? All out there into the middle of the ice flows. And here we motherfucking are, right? And this is where the, the guy writing to his sister comes back and is like, can you believe it? <laughs> like, that's nuts, right? Isn't that a crazy story? Anyway, everything's going, wait, wait, no, the next letter. Not everything's going well. The ice opened up. The ship can now continue to sail forward, and my crew is going to mutiny. Oh. They don't want to keep going. Uh, Why? Because the, they just were locked in the ice, and there's monsters out there. You <laughs> know what I mean? This creepy guy. And I don't know what to do. And then Victor makes a speech. Kind of you're like, Ted Lasso, Coach Taylor-like <laughs> speech to the crew that is a mystery to me. But he says, basically, what are you, a bunch of pussies? Your heart is made of firmer stuff than this ice. Go. Let's keep going. Which is very contradictory to what he said about, like, I don't think we... But it's like his ambition, he needs to keep going. So he, he's willing to sacrifice the crew. It's all very interesting. But he does this great speech. Then he goes back to the room, and he dies of natural causes. Just exhaustion. Oh, my Victor goodness. Victor Frankenstein dies. So the, the brother is writing to his sister. He's like, and then I, there he was dead. So I told the crew, and I come back, and there I saw the creature over his body, mourning him. Not mourning him, but talking to his dead body, kind of the thing. And, I, and Walden balls this big, is like, get the fuck out of here. Like, you're the guy. <laughs> you know what I mean? How dare you? You're a bad monster. And the creature says, you think of me? You don't think it was hard on me? You think I, the, the echoes of his friend dying echo in my ear? The, the boy that I killed, I didn't like that. It was really hard for me, you know. <laughs> anyway, he jumps up into the window and he says to the guy, um, that's, that's curtains for me. And this is, this is the, the last line of the book, last part, part of the book. I shall quit your vessel on the ice raft which brought me thither, and I shall seek the most northern extremity of the globe. I shall collect my funeral pile and consume to ashes this miserable frame that its remains may afford no light to any curious and unhallowed wretch who would create another such as I have been. He sprang from the window upon the ice raft which lay close to the vessel. He was soon borne away by the waves and lost in darkness and distance. The end. Wow. And that is Mary Shelley's novel. That is, yeah. Now that, man, did any of it sound familiar? It sounds familiar. I think I confused, I thought there was more of a female character in it. I think I just confused Mary Shelley somehow into the story. Um, I don't remember it being quite as awful as that. I think I blocked her. <laughs> I feel really depressed now. It is bad. It's like everybody dies. Like, spoiler alert, 
just a bloodbath. <laughs> yeah. Just like like Shakespeare would read this yeah. thing and be like, pump the brakes, Mary. Like, I think everyone's upset and everyone's sad the whole time and awful things happen. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And it's scary as fuck. Mm. Like there are things, like there's one passage in particular on one of M- Victor's many difficult nights. <laughs> he has a dream that he's kissing Elizabeth and he's holding her body and he's kissing her on her mouth. And then he starts to feel strange and he looks he like pulls back and looks down and it's the rotting corpse of his dead mother <laughs> uh-huh i know like it's like mm, there's good stuff in here wow. so people read this they were scared out of their fucking minds 1818 this thing was a hit immediately when it came out and it was published anonymously nobody knew who wrote it now percy shelley who is mary shelley's husband wrote the introduction and so, and he was kind of a famous writer and people knew who Mary Shelley and Mary Wollstonecraft, Mary Shelley's mother was. I'll get to that in a minute. But everyone kind of assumed, oh, I think Percy Shelley wrote this. I think it was kind of his coy way to like do an introduction to his own book and like whatever. But there was some speculation, maybe Byron wrote it. People were like, mm-hmm. not sure. When Mary Shelley said it was me and everyone involved was like, oh girl, it was her. Like this is her book. But since then, and I mean up until that point, but certainly since then, People have been as intrigued by how this idea could come from the mind of a then 17-year-old girl. Do you remember your frame of mind when you were a 17-year-old girl? Yeah, I was completely confused and was just like, what the hell is going on? (laughs) Well, so was Mary, to be fair, but but she just had a much wider vocabulary. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, so this is the most read book worldwide. It is the most read and it is the most assigned book. People are reading this book in ethics class, literature, history, politics, law, religion, art, and culture. It is uh, read constantly. And that it was written by a 17-year-old girl, blew people's minds Mm. then, blows people's minds now. I mean, you can't, some people are like, name another female author from anywhere near this time. And you're like, Jane Austen. Jane Austen. <laughs> yeah. And then there's like Emily Brown. Like there's some yeah. poets, but like it is a shallow ass pool, dude. And so then the questions are always like, where does this idea come from? How can a 17 year old girl write this? And then why are we still reading it? Why is it still so intriguing? Why does it still permeate our culture so much? Um, and we're going to get to that next, but I want to know first, do you have any questions, thoughts? I think a lot of my questions are going to be about Mary Shelley because like what the hell fucked up stuff happened in her life but at the age of 17 she was writing this because you know I I feel like I was I was definitely not a mature 17 year old (laughs) no I liked I I just had loads of animals and pets and horses and just liked hanging out with them I definitely wasn't Writing weird, spooky novels. If I had written a novel when I was 17, it would have been some terrible mashup of, like, vampire stuff, but definitely not, like, a cool Dracula, like, like teenage heartthrob vampire stuff. Oh, (laughs) it would have been a rotten, rotten book. But who knows? knows? Mine would have been some angsty... uh, I'd create a new genre, like, angsty horse novels. <laughs> the, I can't read to read you. Your 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 angsty horse novel. Would it, there'd be like a series. Uh, yeah. I can't wait. Uh, well, we are going to take a little break, and when we come back, uh, we're going to go face first into Mary Shelley. <laughs> Sounds delightful. Hey, pretty fun so far, right? Now I know this is usually where podcasters put their ads. But um, I don't have any of those yet. So to help me out with that, uh, just do what my friend Kat says. Follow me, follow me, follow me, follow. 
are back. You've got a little caffeine. Yep. And you've had a vegan pastry. <laughs> I've had a few vegan pastries. Thank you very much. <laughs> You're welcome. I'm glad. I'm glad that you are here and we have settled in. You have recovered emotionally and psychologically from the trauma <laughs> of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Yeah. And, uh, and now we're going to get into the bell of the ball, the lady herself, Mary Shelley. So did you have any, any questions off the top or do you just want me to jump in? Did she write anything else? Yes, she did nothing. Obviously, it comes close yeah, I, uh, to, to the novel. She wrote a couple of other novels. She, I find her most interesting stuff is her short stories. Because mm -hmm. her novels, she inserts so much politics and contemporary idealism in her dialogue. So it's just like if, if she was writing two characters talking, she inserts so much about current events, it becomes really difficult and tedious to read at the time and definitely now. Where she doesn't do that is in two works, another science fiction, um, the, Immort the Mortal Immortal, which is this fantastic short story about a guy who sort of accidentally takes the elixir of life and doesn't die and how he slowly realizes he can't die, and it's great. And then the other one is called The Last Man, kind of a Twilight zone kind of somebody realizing they're alone on Earth. So those are both very good and creepy. And her letters and her diaries are fascinating because wow. she is so fascinating. She's creepy. She's creepy and cool. Um, yeah. So, because I told you how many people have been reading this thing forever, right? Mm -hmm. And because the novel is so good and then people are like, wait, who wrote it? What the fuck? Who is this girl? And she's, and you see the portrait of her. Helen yeah. is looking at a picture of her on the cover of her biography. She, um... She looks a little bit like me. <laughs> she, do <laughs> she does look a little bit like you. It's true. Uh, she has a, she has a famously high forehead, um, and red hair. And she, um, in that picture, not me, Mary Shelley. <laughs> that's correct. <laughs> in this picture, she's 42, which is my age. She looks very youthful for 42, as do you, Dawn. Bingo. I was waiting for, I was like, it's got, I said something mean about your forehead. I don't deserve that. So what I'm going to try to do, because I don't like, I'm, I love history. Mm -hmm. And I know that people don't always love history. They get bored. And usually the thing you hear, and it breaks my heart, makes me want to throw up. People are like, I don't like history. Uh, it's boring. And I get like, are you nuts? And I know why people think it's boring. It's often because of the way it's presented. And mm -hmm. it's often because people present it with dates and figures and chronological and they lose you, right? And so I want to do that with Mary Shelley. I want to do like born in 1797, died in 1851, blah. Um, I'm going to try to go through her life via the theories of the book. Okay. Right? Because people are like, where did Frankenstein come, come from? What is Frankenstein really about? And I think you can go through Mary's life with people's assumptions about what they think it is. So, but I'm going to say right at the top, she was born in 1797, London. You lived in and around London. Mm -hmm. It apparently sucked in 1797. <laughs> yeah. It was a real shithole in 1797. Uh, is it still? Parts of it. No. <laughs> it's, um, no, it's lovely. I love London. It's <laughs> in, in 17, whenever it was. When was it? 1797. 1797. Yeah, I'm sure it was full of smog and... Like open sewers open sewers and people with all kinds of horrible diseases packed in too tightly and all just yeah i can imagine it wasn't great no not not the green beautiful cloudy dreary <laughs> city that it is today when you're talking about the life of mary shelley one of the reasons why you can tell the history through these parts of her life is because people have poured over as i have her diaries and her letters and all of her friends and and sussed out all these theories so one of the first ones one of the most common things that people say is frankenstein when you're really trying to figure it out frankenstein man is a novel all about bad parents 
She's oh. 17. How much life could she have had up until this point? She must be commenting on her own bad parents and the bad parental stuff. Yeah, or some kind of fucked up family life. It's it, you. I yeah. think you even said, right, let's God, what the fuck happened to her? <laughs> yeah. By the time she was 17, that all this stuff came up. Um, and so people have, have written books and, and, and pur- you know, purported theories that, that Frankenstein's all about bad parents, primarily daddy issues. And, and there's a lot of support for that <laughs> because her parents were amazing. They were radical, famous writers, both of that's them. What, were they not quite wealthy? She's from a rich family, right? It's, no. That, oh. And that's a common misconception. Her parents were radicals, mm-hmm. famous, well-known, always poor. Poverty permeates Mary's life pretty much to the end. She's wow, never really rich. I didn't rich. know that. I thought she was from this really wealthy uh-uh. family. No, in fact, um, quite the opposite. Um, they were... They were always financially in trouble and it was in part because of their ideals so mary shelley's mother is mary wollstonecraft she's mm-hmm. the first feminist in the 1750s she wrote vindication of the rights of women arguing radically among other things that a married woman should not lose all rights to her husband <laughs> <laughs> you know a married woman had no property rights she had no rights to her children she could not vote she could not own money she could not nothing a single woman could do some of those things if she came from money, if she otherwise had a way to support herself, and that went as far as her children, because bastard children had even less rights mm-hmm. than married women, right? <laughs> so it was a pretty tight corner to be painted into yeah. as a woman. And Mary Wollstonecraft wrote this beautiful thing about that. She was also so fucking interesting. Mary Wollstonecraft, during the French Revolution, which started around um, the 1780s, around, you know, shortly after the American Revolution, everyone flees Paris, gets out of France because it's a war zone. Mm-hmm. Mary Wollstonecraft goes to Paris. <laughs> Um, to be a war correspondent. She's like, I got to write about it. I want to see it and I want to write about it. While she's there, she meets this American businessman named Gilbert Imlay and gets pregnant with his child. But she does not believe in marriage. She's an atheist. She's an anarchist. And she's like, it's fine. I'll just be a single mom. She loves him. She wants to be with him. But not like in a marriage situation. In fact, he gets another girlfriend and she's like, cool, cool. Well, the three of us then. We'll just kind of live together, right? <laughs> wow. Yeah. It's cr- so her mom is crazy. <laughs> so her mom has this single kid with Gilbert Imlay who eventually fucks off back to America and she comes back to London and she's everybody in this story is constantly trying to get paid for their writing. At the same time, they're writing things without trying to get paid, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. They're not trying to write something because people will buy it. They're just artists in a pure artist sense. And, and then in, in previous times, it works similar actually to what I'm seeing with like social media influencers. The idea is I'm an artist, all right? I'm just divinely inspired. People are just, I make art, which means I need a sponsor. I need a rich person mm-hmm. to pay my rent pay my car, pay for my phone, because this is my job. My job is just to be awesome and to put out amazing, fantastic content. I'm looking for one of those if any, anyone's <laughs> exactly. listening right Exactly. Now. It's like, I feel like 2021 is like the most reminiscent <laughs> of this like old school form of like artists like having just having a patron. A patron. It, yeah. It's finding a patron, a sponsor, and they're all, you know, kind of constantly looking for it. So Mary Wollstonecraft and William Godwin, who's also an atheist, doesn't believe in marriage, anti-government, anti-monarchy, um, they fall in love. And um, she gets pregnant with Mary. Mm-hmm. Not Shelley yet, of course, but Mary <laughs> Wollstonecraft Godwin. She gets pregnant and they decide, scandal- first time they've ever scandalized their friends, they decide to get married. <laughs> Because Mary Wollstonecraft's first kid is just up shit creek. 
and they know it. They're like, this is like, I believe in the vindication of rights of women, but as that is not the reality right now, it is the only, it is the best possible situation. So they like get married and their friends are shocked, scandalized (laughs) that they would get married. Mary Shelley is born and 10 days later, Mary Wollstonecraft dies from postpartum infection. Oh, yes. I know. Buckle up. You wanted to know where this book came (laughs) from. Um, so they are, so she is then raised by William Godwin and his new wife. And now he's, she's got a couple kids. And so we've got Mary Wollstonecraft's first illegitimate child, Mary, William Godwin's new wife. There are five kids living in the house, none of whom share the same two parents. People, I mean, it is even 2021, (laughs) it would raise an eyebrow, right? The, the only, uh, you know, green safe place that she can go in London is the cemetery where her mother is buried. And in fact, she learns to write her name on her mother's tombstone. Mary, tracing her own first name on her mother's tombstone. Okay. This is so sad. I know, I know. <laughs> but, the, but again, this is the theory that yeah. like, it's all about bad dads, right? Her dad is this crazy radical intellectual who believes that women should be raised with all these rights, should mm. be highly educated and totally independent, that children should be following their own instincts and that there are no rules and no government. And at 16, Mary meets and falls in love with a 21-year-old married poet named <laughs> Percy Shelley who is there because he's going to bail her dad out financially. He's a rich guy. He comes from a rich, wealthy family. But he's, he's, <laughs> he gives all of his money away. And his family is seeing that he's one of those guys who meets artists and is like, I'll pay for you. I'll sponsor you. <laughs> I'll give you money. And, he's get, and so his family's starting to tighten the screws and cut him off because he's not being very responsible with his money. She meets him. She's like, and it's great because my dad doesn't care about marriage and you don't care about marriage. So it doesn't even matter that you're married because basically we're married in our hearts. But it's like William Godwin is like, no, no. (laughs) And everyone's kind of like, no, no, Mary. And so in the middle of the night, 16 years old, Mary Shelley tiptoes out of the house. Percy Shelley is waiting for her with a horse-drawn carriage. They jump in, they dash away. Their parents do pursue them. They have fresh horses waiting for them at each stop, and they leap like fugitives from one stop onto the next, all the way to the English Channel, where they board a ship and weather a fierce storm across the English Channel until they are safely in France, Paris, where her mom went to be a journalist, right? She's like, this is so great. They brought with them (laughs) Mary's half-sister, Claire, who's a total slut, not half as smart, but she does speak French, and they need someone (laughs) who can speak a little bit better French. So they are now in France, and, and the stepmom, the Mary, uh, uh, Claire's mom, does pursue them. Like, fuck, what? <laughs> they fucking ran away and, like, pursued them. And they even see her at one point looking for them around Paris, and they escape. And these three bums walk across Europe for six weeks. Wow. Okay. Smoking opium, meeting interesting people. Okay, that sounds kind of fun. Exactly. (laughs) They take hikes up into the mountains. They stay in bad, good places. If they get a little money, they stay in nicer places. And they run out of money, they decide to walk. And it would all be great if Mary hadn't gotten pregnant. Because that sucks a lot. I mean, if if you have a car and like a really nice plane, it sucks to travel when you're pregnant. I don't know. They don't quite know she's pregnant. They kind of suspect she's pregnant. But anyway, she's not well. We ran out of money. It's time to go home. So they all go back to England where they are pariahs. It is people who knew and loved them cross the street to avoid being seen near them. They are desperate for money. And that's one of the reasons why, too, they're asking everybody for money. And in the middle of this, pregnant, she's 16, she's pregnant, she's broke. She's just got back from Europe. Percy is married, and his family is starting to get really pissed off. They've cut him off entirely because of this whole ex- escapade. And her, she goes to her dad. Her dad doesn't speak to her at first and then says, I need some money. 
where's my money from Percy? Though if you don't, re you know, this is the whole thing was that I need money from him. And so they are F-U-C-K, Ed. <laughs> so everything is bad. And then her sister Fanny has it even worse. She doesn't have any living parents. Her mom was Mary Wollstonecraft. Her dad is Gilbert Imlay. She's just being taken care of by these people now to pure obligation, and they're not terribly nice to her. And Fanny is not pretty or interesting or smart or well-read. She can't play any musical instruments. She's fucked. She's fucked, right? So, so people are like, yeah, that's, that's basically Frankenstein, right? It's just about like bringing a kid into this world, not taking uh. care of it. it. It takes life from your inspiration and your radical sense of being, but then as soon as it awakens into itself, you reject it, you find it repulsive, you throw it away, and it rates. So people pretty much okay. nod and are like, yeah, that sounds to me like that's, where yeah. Frankenstein came from. But Mary Shelley and Percy idolized Mary Wollstonecraft and William Godwin to the end. They were rock stars of literature and art and humanities. When they went to Europe in their suitcases that they ran away and dragged <laughs> across Europe, they didn't bring food or money. They brought their parent, Mary Wollstonecraft and William Godwin's writings. <laughs> and that was what they would read to each other while they slept. She, when they had kids, she named her son William after her dad. So... I, it can't all be about a bad no. dad. You know what I mean? It doesn't seem... I mean, I'm sure it's in there. Like, all this stuff is probably in there, but that one doesn't seem yeah. to quite wow. fit. Fascinating. Fascinating. Okay, theory number two. Mm -hmm. Frankenstein is obviously all about death and wanting to bring the dead back to life, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. About wanting to stay alive forever, wanting to bring your dead back. It's an inherent, timeless thing. That people have always wanted to do. And people read that theory and go, well, yeah, duh. Frankenstein's obviously, it's about bringing the dead to life. That's the whole plot yeah. point, right? And Mary knew death. Yeah. It would have been on her mind all the time. Not only does her mom die 10 days after she's born and she learns her name by well, laying in a graveyard. Yeah, she's hanging out in the graveyard. It, hanging out in the graveyard. It's where Percy and she had their first kiss and their first fuck. <laughs> Was on her mother's grave. That's fucking creepy. Yeah. So fucking death on your is mother's grave. Fucking on your mother's grave. When I say they loved Mary Wollstonecraft, <laughs> yeah. I mean. They also, really London did. public executions are like a favorite form of entertainment, mm -hmm. and she can see Newgate Prison's execution gallows from her bedroom mother-loving window. She can see the bodies. And, the, and they would do these huge mass public executions, and the, one of them, 42 people died because they were crushed by the crowd to see the execution. So death, death, oh, death. Yeah. There's war everywhere. The, England, they just got back from the American War. They've been fighting France forever. So visions of war, discussions of war, and the images of war have been constant and around her her whole life. Mary Shelley, Claire, and Percy come back from their trip abroad, and they have an awful time. And Mary gives birth to the baby who dies shortly after. Her oh infant. <laughs> exactly. Just more death. Exactly. Her infant oh. dies. Um, and things are, are awful and miserable and they go off and have another great adventure, which I'll fill you in on later. And they get back and Fanny, remember Fanny? Poor Fanny. She didn't get to go to Europe. She didn't get to go on any of these adventures. She never fucked Byron. She never fucked anybody. Nobody ever wanted to fuck her. <laughs> no one ever thought she was a literary genius. She was Mary Wollstonecraft's daughter too, but she was just kind of plain and dumb. Anyway, she sends a letter to Mary that says, by the time you read this, I will be dead. No. Percy runs out to try to find her. And by the time he gets out and is like, traces her down, they found a woman who has died of a laudanum 
overdose. Yeah. Laudanum is opium and cocaine, yeah. kind of fantastic. In this case, laudanum was like an over-the-counter medication. <laughs> and um, and uh, she swallows it and kills herself. So Fanny's suicide, that was before the publication of the novel. Percy's pregnant wife, Harriet, pregnant wife, Harriet, kills herself, throws herself into the Thames. They find her. Oh, my God. <laughs> and I told you about the infant who died. That was before the novel was published. She has four children with Percy and only one lives past the age of three. That's terrible. So is Frankenstein about death and the desire to want to control death, stop death? Yeah. But I don't know. I don't, I don't buy it, honestly, because Victor Frankenstein has a lot of death too. His mom, his love, his little brother, blah, blah, blah. He never tries to bring anyone specific back to life. Right? There is never an impetus in Victor to bring Elizabeth back, to bring his... There's no sort of notation of an immortal soul. He never considers the creature's life prior to having dug up his body. He gives no consideration to the body of the woman. There really seems to be a, a disconnect between what, wh you know, where death is. He never, for example, tries to keep himself alive forever. He never considers these, how the things mm. he's been doing could be applied to himself to stay alive, you know, forever. It really seems like Victor's motivation is not to beat death. It's to be famous. It's to be the first one to have done it, to, to be the first one to the peak, the first one to accomplish this thing, to, to defy his haters more than bringing the yeah. dead to life. So do what you want to bring the dead to life. Do you see your dead baby and think, my God, of course. And she talks about that. But I don't think it's the, the like, yeah. oh, this is what this book's about, you know? Okay, theory number three. Obviously, the novel Frankenstein is entirely about playing God mm -hmm. and the warnings, yes. right? The warning of science, right? Beware of this science. It's the, it's the Dr. Malcolm in Jurassic Park, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Your scientists were so intrigued with if they could, they didn't think, should they, right? And so it's, and this, it, one of the reasons why this can, is considered the first piece of science fiction that it took what was really happening in science with galvanism and Aldine, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that, to, to this new place of, of fiction and warning people, don't you go there. Don't use this science the way that it could go this way. It's a cautionary tale. And people read that and go, yes, obviously that's what it is. The stuff she talks about is so current. Grave robbing is happening all the all time. All the time, yeah. Because cadavers were so valuable, even yeah. for legitimate medical students, they would get like a cadaver and have to share it throughout the year. <laughs> which is not a great way to learn how to do no. surgery or about the body. So cadavers were so valuable, and part of it was because we were not Christians comfortable with good Christian people, so that was part of these executions were actually really helpful because executed criminals, you could do whatever you yeah. wanted to, and so their bodies were often used. And um, once we sort of learned how to harness electricity, Benjamin Franklin's key and kite experiment was 1770s. Like, this is all very new. We, Galvani had done these public demonstrations of how if you, if you shock the body of a dead frog, its legs flop around like it's alive. And people would come from all over the fucking place to be like, whoa. <laughs> and they'd pay a lot of money to watch a dead frog flop around. Galvani's <laughs> nephew, Eldini, takes this whole thing one step further. He starts doing those experiments on human bodies with these executed cadavers. The, the, the publicate, they were, they were famous in London and elsewhere. People would come from all over the place. Dude, Helen, they would bring out dead naked dudes, right? Headless. Attach various electrodes to their bodies and show how this headless dead guy will just shoot up an arm. 
shoot up a leg, <laughs> jerk, sit, so sit up, lay down, sit up. Then, oh, you think it's creepy? Wait, this was the climax. This is the the the, the big show at the end. They bring the severed head oh, out God. on a platter. They attach electrodes to its face, and they have the severed dead head open up its eyes, smile, prune, stick out his tongue, look around the room. Oh my goodness. You, Percy went to some of these. Uh, Mary okay. saw some of these. Okay. So yeah. this was very, again, ripped from the headline. So people are like, obviously she's like, stop this shit. Right. Um, they also, everything everyone had seen about science so far had just fucked it up. Like the cotton gin, which gave, which gave us the ability to process cotton really, really, really fast is part of what created the slave trade because right. now we needed people to pick it as mm-hmm. quickly as we could process it in order for it to be valuable. And she hated slavery. And she was just, it was kind of like all of these elements of like all science and technology does is separate us from the natural world, ruin the natural world and hurt people. Yeah. And that's all she's ever seen. And so her, what she set up for science fiction is exactly the model. She never used the word science fiction, by the way, this is all kind of hindsight mm-hmm. stuff is the same model that we have followed ever since every piece of science fiction you've ever consumed ever film, mm-hmm. movie, book, whatever, follows this. A cre- creator brings something to life, brings something new into this world. That creation then has life, behaves independently, behaves uh, surprisingly to the creator, then turns on the creator, is more powerful, takes control, turns out into the world, causes mass destruction. It's Jurassic well, Park. Yeah. He's on an island. He digs up the, bo- the mosquito. He brings these things to life. They m- mutate. They mate. They turn on their creator. They cause, you know, mass destruction. 2001, A Space Odyssey. Everything that we've, every decade has their quote unquote Frankenstein's monster. We think once we bring in artificial intelligence is the Frankenstein's monster of a lot of the 90s and 2000s with the Matrix and all these kind of things. Um, Viral stuff. I Am Legend. Did you ever see that one with Will Smith? Yes. We create a cure for cancer, but it turns on us and it turns, right? So there's, she started this wheel that really, boy, we've given it a lot of different contexts, but it is. Frankenstein's monster every, every single time. So, obviously, that's what Frankenstein's about, right? But! Oh. If Mary, Shelley, <laughs> if Mary Shelley had decided that she was going to write a book criticizing science, this is not the book. This, first of all, she does mention some of, like, oh, El Galvani had said some of this was possible. She, like, mentions it once. She doesn't say galvanism is bad. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. She doesn't use these names. In fact, she doesn't even say exactly how you bring a dead guy to life. She doesn't say lightning bolt. She doesn't say how extreme. She just says the only thing she tells us about how you bring the dead to life is a spark of being and instruments of life. Hmm. It is why every visual medium that has told us the story of Frankenstein movies and stuff have to figure out what that is. Yeah. He's and like lightning makes sense. Only like electric. Yeah. Like I just don't believe that Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is exclusively a criticism of science because she puts very little science into the book itself. And it's more, it seems again, more to be critical of the ambition. Right. Do you think that if she'd written it when she was older, she might have thought more about what she was trying to say politically or, you know, about what was going on in the world? Or do you think because it's from the mind of a 17 year old? It wasn't so fueled by beliefs and ideals. That's a really good question. And we have actually the luxury of an answer to an extent. Because the original novel was published in 1818 when she was 19 years old. Mm -hmm. In 1831, 
it is republished. She has made some substantial changes okay. and she writes her own introduction. So for those of you out there who have read, some of you might be like, I don't remember that part. Or why isn't she mentioning this about the book? It's because those two versions of the book are generally the same, but slightly different. For example, there's a point in Frankenstein's youth where he's at home and he sees a lightning bolt strike a tree on his property and it's disintegrated. It just, it was a tree and then it's gone. And he witnesses the destructive power of electricity. And he's so fascinated by it and he's talking to his dad about it. And in the 1818 version, it says, my dad and I did the key and kite experiment. So he could like show me and explain to me more about how that worked. That was very new. That was Benjamin Franklin. People knew the key and the kite experiment and associated it with the American colonies, which right. is why when she republished it in 1831, she was like, fuck Benjamin Franklin, fuck the colonies. And when we get to that part of the book where he's like, so I saw this tree get disintegrated by lightning and I was so intrigued, she's like, no, Key and Kite, <sighs> it's galvanism. So she did, as she got older, change the, what the book was saying to say something else, to say something more or less political. She changes Elizabeth in the 1818 version is his first cousin. Okay. It's his father's <laughs> sister's child. In the 1831 version, Elizabeth is an orphan that okay. his mom and dad found and saved. <laughs> um, so she, you know, she makes a couple of various political adjustments. Yeah. So when you say would she have done it when she was older? Yeah. And she does change yeah. it a little bit, but not, not that substantially. Mm. So what the fuck is it, Mary? Here we are. I've read everything. I've read it all, Helen, <laughs> and she never tells us. She never? What, no. what is Frank? So wh here we are. We don't, we, we're 203 years later, and all everybody wants to know is why did you write this book and where did it come from? It was the only question every, really people were asking her, <laughs> you know, her whole life. Where did this come from? And she knew that it was the question everybody wanted to know. So in that 1831 introduction, she says, Okay, you fucks. <laughs> right? At this point now, she's 32. Okay. Um, she goes, 32, 33. She goes, okay. And she says, you, everybody wants to know how, and she, this is exactly what she says, how does a young girl conceive of such a monstrous story as mine? It was the summer of 1816. So remember I said they had this adventure. Yeah. She's lost her baby her first baby. She's in love with Percy. No one will loan the money. No one will talk to them. Her dad's a dick. Claire comes out of the blue, half-sister slutty Claire, and is like, you guys know what I think we should do? Remember how much fun it was when they like went to Europe? I know. Let's go to Geneva, Switzerland. That's a beautiful place. Let's go right now. <laughs> and so uh, Mary and Percy are like, oh, I don't know. I'm all right. And they go and they're like, hey, this is this where Byron has his summer home. Let's just go see if he's home. Right? <laughs> kind of. It's like, they kind of drop in. They pretty much drop in unexpectedly on Lord Byron because here's the deal. Claire had fucked Lord Byron and was pregnant with oh. his baby. And after she got pregnant, he left. And she's like, shit, 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 shit. Claire's okay. She's kind of cute. She's just never as interesting or as brilliant as Mary. And that's like Fanny, but she's cuter. <laughs> she's but she knows Byron loves Mary Wollstonecraft's daughter. William Godwin and Mary Wollstonecraft's daughter, Mary Shelley, oh my God. And Percy Shelley, yes. They're her ticket in. He talked about them all the time and they could kind of use some of Byron's sparkle mm -hmm. too. He's rich. Yeah, he, is he, mm -hmm. he's rich and famous already. Very rich and very famous. Okay. He's Sting. Let me find the picture of Lord Byron in this book so you can feast upon the brown, beautiful locks. 
Like, no, oh. no one ever really looks Girl. that great from this time period. Oh, yeah, he's pretty handsome. See what I mean? Even yeah. like a, yeah, he's a, he's a babe and he's sort of famously a babe and he's a, and he sleeps around. Like that's kind of what's known. Cause he's, Oh, I'm a free thinker, free love. They called it free love. Free it was love. the same phrase that we used in the sixties. So Claire's like, I am so pregnant. I mean, I'm so, <laughs> um, want to go to Geneva. So she knows that she's got this kind of ticket in that Percy and Mary will probably go with her because it's Lord Byron and that Lord Byron will probably let her come in because it's Percy and Mary. And it's like, a Jonas brother bringing a beetle. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, eh, yeah. All right. Oh, you're bringing Paul McCartney. Come on in. So, um, so they go to Lake Geneva. Now Byron has rented this beautiful house called the Villa Diodate and he's got a pile of opium and all this money. And they, for a minute are out of London and they don't have to worry about money. And they have the summer of their lives. It is drugs, <laughs> it is sex, it is books. And in the backdrop of all this is everybody, every romantic's favorite thing, which is a wild storm. The summer of 1816 in Geneva, Switzerland was unlike any summer they've ever had since. Even with climate change being what it is now, there've never been a summer of storms like there was in 1816. There had been a volcanic eruption off the coast of Tahiti, set the weather system off, and the storms were supernatural. They were purple skies, lightning coming in sideways, rain, 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 and they were, as a result, stuck inside. <laughs> Loving it because they're fucking romantic and there's no it's fucking opium. Totally. <laughs> and everybody's fucking and they're just having a blast. And they're all super smart and intellectual and can read five languages. So Byron's got this one book in particular called The Phantasmagoria. It's a collection of stories of the occult and the supernatural and super spooky stuff. And they're taking turns reading from it and like scaring each other and stuff like that. And one night, Byron says, There's a challenge on the table. I want everyone here to go and write a new ghost story. Something we've never heard. I like to imagine that he kind of came up from behind the couch and like a lampshade <laughs> on his head and like Claire's panties on his nose. Um, and is like, everybody go write a new ghost story. Now Mary says in the introduction, Percy said it in the introduction to the 1818, kind of something to this. We had a party and he proposed a challenge and here we are. Mary kind of lays it out and she says, so I, that was when I got the idea. I saw in my mind, in a vision, a waking dream. <clears throat> <laughs> um, a young medical student kneeling over the thing that he had put together. I saw the creature's limbs start to quake. I was so scared. I knew that this would be a scary story. So I wrote that shit. And then, you know, this, and here we are. You're welcome, everybody. Good enough story, but here's my favorite part. <laughs> At the Villa Diodate, there were five people. Mary, in her introduction, says, there were four of us that summer. And then she mentions this guy, Polidori. She's like, oh, and Polidori, she goes, oh, and Polidori was there and he wrote a really, she says, in the introduction to the book, she takes the time to say he wrote a really terrible story <laughs> about a woman and a skull. And it was no good. Anyway, then I wrote mine and here we are. It's fascinating she mentions them at all. And it's fascinating because there were five of them and he was the fifth. It was Mary, Lord Byron, Percy, Claire, and Polidori. Polidori's not really a writer. He kind of is, but he's mostly a doctor. And he's young, and he has a huge hard-on for Mary. We know this in hindsight because his journal is pretty much a play-by-play -play of everything Mary did that weekend. So Polidori isn't exactly a writer, but he's like, sure, I love opium and <laughs> a writing challenge, why not? And he comes down with his ghost story about a vampire. And his short story is called The Vampire, V-Y-M-P-R-E. Prior to that short story that Polidori wrote, vampires had existed only in 
the Eastern European, it was a humanoid, kind of looked like a, drank blood for sure, used to be a human, but otherwise did not resemble the vampires you and I know at all. They were languageless, slobbery teeth monsters that ripped your head off and throw your carcass by the side of the road. Polidori's vampire. Handsome, rich. Hot vampire. Hot vampire who lives in a castle. And women come from all over. They're willing victims. They're so seduced. They just can't stand it. And he bites them. Ah! There. Or, ooh, right there. And he, right, all the... um, Bram Stoker includes in his bibliography this story of the vampire where he, when he later in 1867 writes Dracula, he's like... Because he nicked the idea off him. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. But what this means, Helen... Mm-hmm. is that on one dark <gasps> and stormy night, wow. in a castle on a lake, two of our longest living monsters were conceived of and written down. You, it is Halloween. As you and I write, uh, record this, it is October 2021. You cannot throw a dead cat without hitting the creature or Frankenstein, Frankenstein's monster or, the, you know, right? yeah. or Dracula. These are our monsters. One night. That's a fucking party. That is a party. And the moral of the story is... Go smoke opium in Geneva. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Right? The moral of the story is don't do drugs. And if you're going to do them with all your friends in the house, write poetry, don't go driving. (laughs) And that, my dear friend Helen, is the story of Frankenstein and Mary Shelley. Wow, my little mind is blown. I'm going to be thinking about this for a long time now. I want to hazard you against one thing, though. Mm-hmm. This is the time of year when people like, we talk about Frankenstein, mm-hmm. and people get very um, hard up to say, you know, Frankenstein is the name of the scientist. You shouldn't call the creature Frankenstein. And it's pretentious. And it makes people not want to talk to you about Frankenstein anymore. <laughs> yeah. And so I don't do that. And I want to I let you know something. Mary, in her lifetime, saw that very complication that people started saying, I, yeah. conflating the Frankenstein. She, there was a it. political cartoon. I haven't seen it. I've looked for it. I've only seen it described. And it was like Irish. It was like Irish politics or something. Anyway, there was a little illustration that had a creature, the monster, and it, you know, as Ireland mm. or whatever it's supposed to be. And it said, a Frankenstein. The idea that this has been created and now yeah. it's set loose and it's this horrible monstrous thing. But they misnamed, <laughs> you know, they did it. They did yeah. the classic thing saying this, the creature is a Frankenstein or Frankenstein. And Mary saw it and didn't say shit. So who it's the hell okay. am I to? Yeah, I'm going to say it to everyone this Halloween and just make so myself look really smart. Excited. I say it doesn't matter if you call him the creature or Frankenstein, just call him. <laughs> Just call him. Just call him. He's sad. He's so sad. Oh. I know. I know. Sad for so many reasons right now. (laughs) Um, Well, Helen, you are a rock star. I adore you. (laughs) Tell me, before we set you loose, can you tell us and our listeners if they love you and they want to hear more of your amazing accent and catch you doing comedy? How do we find you? How do we follow you? Um, Follow me on Instagram. It is at Helen Shephard1. Yeah, there's an H in there that confuses everyone. An H and an A. An H and an A. I think it's easy to remember you and hard. I think people can <laughs> people can put Helen and hard <laughs> together. Well, we well, were we you. are going to keep up with you forever. And I have a present for you. <gasps> I got you your very own copies. 
Oh, Cookies. Frankenstein. I got you both the 1818 and the 1831. You can choose. Do you want to go with the incest? Do you want to go with the politics? It's really up to you, but you now have both. Oh, wow. This is so exciting. I'm really going to try and read them. I'm very bad at reading novels. I start I'm not going to give you a quiz or anything. <laughs> <laughs> you can just put them on your shelf and look pretentious yeah. if you want to. I have both copies. Oh, did you know that he read Paradise Lost? <laughs> It, already, it sounds so natural coming from you. Your accent gives you all the legitimacy you mean. Um, well, I thank you again, my friend, and happy thank Halloween. You. Yay, happy Halloween. <laughs> and that was it. The debut, the flagship. Now, none of us are virgins at this anymore. <laughs> See you in two weeks when I sit down with the voice top five finalist from season six, Kat Perkins. She assigned me the 1930s bank robber and total sex pot, John Dillinger. And she is the haunting voice you hear in our theme music. Thanks to her and Eric Warner for creating it for us. A big special thanks also to the Bakken Museum in Minneapolis, which still hosts a bitchin' Frankenstein exhibit, and to Meryl Klimau, who was my Yoda getting this podcast set up, and who you can listen to on her own podcast, Campfire Shit Show, which she co-hosts with Bo Hufford. They are hilarious. They don't camp, but they are definitely a shit show. As for us, please like, follow, rate, share. Uh, feel free to reach out to us anytime on Instagram, at Hilth Podcast or on Facebook. Thanks again. See you next time.